This is the Journey 66 Book Writing Podcast. I'm Melissa Parks with Dave Getz, and we are your road trip advisors. You may be at mile marker one and just thinking about an idea for a book, or maybe you've gone off-road in your writing and you want to restart the journey. Join Dave and me as we help you buckle up and write. For many people, it's a mystery how to grow a social media following. Now, I know you were expecting Melissa Parks to start this episode because she is the host of Journey 66, but today I'm interviewing her, so I am doing the host, so you have to deal with that. So, for many of us, trying to grow a social media following is very time-consuming and difficult. Melissa has done it really, really well, and it feels tiresome, it can feel futile, and Melissa's had those feelings as well, but she has grown an Instagram following of 25 thousand followers from zero to 25,000 followers. It's taken her seven years. About a year ago, she got stuck or she felt stuck. And that was because her growth started to slow. Daily, Melissa posts to her account images and captions related to her enjoyment of and expertise in vintage and antique collecting and home decor. In fact, her Instagram account, if you want to visit it, is called McGillicuddy. So when she started to plateau, when she started to slow, when her account started to slow in terms of growth and her engagement started to fall, she engaged her son Davis to do some analysis. And so today the interview is with Melissa about her Instagram following and what she and her son Davis learned when they did an analysis of her engagement and her posts over a year. And I think you'll find this really, really, really helpful. But, 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 before we start the interview, we need to talk about our progress. So, Melissa, where have you made progress this past week? I like this rule of reversal. We should do it more often. <laughs> Feels really awkward to me. <laughs> yeah, it, for me too, but it's kind of nice. I don't have the pressure of the intro. <laughs> So my progress has to do with actually using an app that I downloaded about two months ago when the weather was really, really bad. It was freezing and my friend and I couldn't get outdoors to go running. And we had these spinning bikes, I think I mentioned at our local activity center. And so I started to use the Peloton app for these spinning rides. So I figured if I don't have an instructor, if I can't join a class, I can at least use this as an airsats instructor and do my own ride. And I really enjoyed that. As I was looking at the app, I realized that they also have workouts for like boot camp, weight training, walking, um, outdoor biking, and also outdoor running. And my friend and I like to jog and run, and we have decided that we've plateaued, to use that word again. And so I thought, why don't we use their interval training activity here? One of They have many. They have like hundreds and hundreds of um, pre-recorded um, activities that you can follow along with. And so we did an interval training running workout and it was so great. What I love about interval training is that you're so focused on the, the short sprints or the higher activity levels that you're focused on the number and you're not really thinking about how difficult it is. So I really like interval training. That was progress actually using an app and not just letting it sit dormant on my phone. Will you do this continually now that the weather's nice? Yeah, I think so. And I think that there's so many different workouts to choose from that we'll just explore and see which 
ones are, we like the best and maybe return to some that are really enjoyable. But yeah, I think it's a way to really stretch yourself. When you, It's like having a personal coach. So I'd actually really recommend the Peloton app, even if you don't have a Peloton bike, because it's just like having a personal coach and it's pretty cheap. So Wow, that's really, I've not heard uh, someone using the Peloton app without having the Peloton bike. That's really impressive. So will you do it once a week, you think? Will it be part of something else that you're doing? Like we're going to do interview, interval training once a week. I think it will be a once a week at least endeavor. I'd also like to incorporate some of their weight training, strength training workouts also. So I'm trying to figure it out. The really nice thing about Peloton is that this app is that it tracks all of your workouts, which is motivating in a sense too. So yeah, I'm, I'm hoping to make it more regular and part of our natural rhythm of working out. So that's progress. That's huge progress. Mine is going to be so mundane compared to that. I doubt it. Oh, it is. <laughs> so my progress simply is I feel today that I'm finally caught up with the work that was like, like the sword of Damocles hanging over my head. Like, So I'm not caught up. I mean, you can look. We're in the office here. I've got all these notes to write. I've got all this work, you know, for our other business, which is CZ Strategy. But the last three or four days, I feel like I've just crushed it. And I've got a lot of these things off my plate. And I can now focus on the, what they call the important but not urgent stuff. So I was sick last week and I thought I actually had COVID. I got tested. I, I did not. And I thought it would be odd that I'd gotten COVID because I have the shots. But I felt so rotten a couple days. It was the first time. I just, I'm just not sick. So anyway, I lost about three or four days. And so I feel really good. So progress for me is very mundane. It's being caught up on my work. I don't think that that's mundane at all. Because when you're not caught up on work, your whole life feels like it's spiraling out of control. So I think that's a, that's a huge thing when you can get the work done that is hanging over you. Yeah, for sure. Let's get into this interview because I think this will be really, really practical for writers. So we know that you're writing a book. And we also know that there are limited hours in the day. You can't do everything. And we also know that some writers can sell books even though they don't have a large social media platform, but they're part of these other tribal communities. Can you identify what some of those tribal communities are for our listeners? So for example, uh, a good example would be we have some uh, people that are part of our road trippers, our weekly Q&A, and they're, they, they're professional coaches, and they're professional coaches in a specific space. And so they do a lot of teaching, a lot of speaking, a lot of workshops, and they're part of these, for example, nonprofit communities, education communities. Um, and so I, I, I was just thinking of, of one person who, who probably is part of four or five communities. Right, right. And they're professional communities. And so when she releases her book, she'll be getting speaking engagements. She'll be able to promote the book. She'll be able to do sponsorships. So her focus on social media is not as, what's the word? It's not as large or important to her. Right. But for most of us, we need to at least pick one social media platform. One. Not all of them, not three of them, not even two of them, but one and do it well. So you picked Instagram. 
Do you remember even why you chose Instagram as your social media platform of choice? Well, I was on Facebook and I posted somewhat regularly to that, but it was all family stuff, what you typically use Facebook for. And my nieces were on Instagram and I wanted to connect with them. And I'm like, what is this Instagram? This seems so strange, but I wanted to follow them. And so I opened up an account. And as soon as I opened up account, I realized that there are lots of people like me who are really interested in home decorating, in um, vintage living and collecting and things like that. I'm like, oh, my tribe is here. People share what I enjoy. And I realized that it was really like mini blogs. These people would get on every day and share images and thoughts related to these images. And it was like going to a micro blog. And it, I, at, before that, I was going to all these interior blogs daily. And it just became really difficult. And you had this long list of bookmarks. But in Instagram, you could just scroll through and get one picture and from a variety of different people. So I started to see my tribe there. And I thought, you know, I have this fledgling brand business jobby called McGillicuddy where I sold vintage items at local flea markets and I thought you know I could start sharing that part of my life here and people might find it interesting and also show some of the projects that I'm working on at home so that's where I got started and I quickly became really enamored with the visual aspect of Instagram and how it actually looked like a gallery your um, homepage or your your profile page actually looks like a gallery, the way that the images are, are created. And so for me, it felt like, oh, this is like having a portfolio of my work. And that really appealed to me. So that's why I picked it. You know, it was like a great place for me to get content, a great place for me to connect with like-minded people. And I thought that it really fit the purpose of my brand, which was sharing my creative side. Before we get into the analysis of what we're going to talk about today, the data analysis that really helped you understand how to improve uh, growing your followers, because that's what you want to do, let's talk about those early years. So today you have 25,000 Instagram followers. To some people that just seems enormous. To other people who have 5 million, you know, if you're the Kardashians, you know, that's not even a drop in the bucket. But for most of us, 25,000 Instagram followers is a lot of followers. How, like during the early years, how did you persist when you had 150 followers? I think it's the way you persist when you have 25,000 followers. It's you enjoying the community and actually wanting to participate in the community. And so for me, even though my community was really small at the beginning, it was something that was satisfying to do because you were getting not just feedback on your own work, but you were finding connections with people. And so even though if I had like 10 comments, I would respond to those comments and then we'd have a conversation and, and people would point out things that they liked about my imagery. And then I'm like, oh, this works. This doesn't work. Let me work on this. And so it became a real way for me to become just a better creative person, you know, help me improve in my creative um, endeavors. And so I think even with 25,000 followers, that's what keeps me going. It's the feedback. It's the, the push to keep improving. It's the connection with other people. I think, you know, social media is about social. And so if you can actually embrace that aspect of it and the engagement of it, I think that will keep you going. That's great. And I think we should do another episode at some point just talking about the specific tactical things that you did 
early on to help grow your following. Today we're really focused on the moment that you realized that your growth had slowed and you were trying to figure that out. How do I grow my account? Talk about that moment and the decision to bring your son into the mix to help you think that through. So it wasn't actually my decision to bring him into the mix. I think my son was absolutely tired of me asking him, Davis, why did this post do so poorly? I would post a really beautiful, in my mind, picture and think, you know, this only got like 150 or 200 likes and I think it's amazing. And, you know, my son would give me feedback. Well, maybe it's because it's not a collection and people really like collections or, you know, the lighting isn't that great or you didn't really have a great caption. He would surmise why a post didn't get a great response. But I was always comparing myself to these other accounts who had, you know, 60,000 followers and they would get 3,000 likes. And I'm like, why are mine only getting 300? And so I would always ask my son because he's young and he actually has a pretty artistic eye. And I think he got tired of that. So for my birthday, he handed me this this envelope, <laughs> this manila envelope, and I opened it up and it was this data analysis. So I guess he did it because he was tired of me asking and he thought that I would really benefit from it. So, but I had noticed that my, my following had been plateauing and I was just, at that point, I was losing interest. This was about a year ago because I just, people weren't liking my things, my posts, and I just was like, Ugh, you know, it just wasn't as much fun anymore. So, so at that point, you were doing it for six years. Right. And you probably were just a little tired with it. And and so this was a great moment to bring Davis in. Now, Melissa won't brag about Davis, but I can do that. So Melissa and I know each other, have known each other for, we are talking before this episode, I think 22 or 23 years. But she was pregnant with Davis when my wife was pregnant with Corey. Corey was born September 12th of 2000 and Davis was born October 25th. 25th. So just over a month apart. So it was kind of cool because we knew each other during that time. But I want to brag a little bit about Davis. Davis uh, attends Northwestern University. I don't think Melissa would even say that. And he is a math and econ and what, what stats, is his major? Stats. St- math. Oh, he's a stats major. Math, econ, and stats. He's triple oh, majoring. <laughs> math, econ, and stats. So one of the great memories I have of Davis, or you, you talking about Davis, was when he's at home uh, in high school doing YouTube videos on calculus. Right. That's Creating Davis. his own YouTube videos on how to uh, tackle calculus problems. So Davis is a, is a really bright child. So I needed to say that before we set this whole thing up. So she has a built-in, in in her house, she has this data analytic genius in in her house. So so she has really benefited. So let's talk about some of the discoveries that he made. So, but where did he start? How did he start doing this? Well, Davis isn't an Instagram expert and he didn't realize that there were actually apps that you could download to analyze your data. So he actually called the numbers from a year's worth of posts and categorized them. (laughs) He accessed the metrics for each post and he inputted all the data and he noted things like likes and comments, hashtags, the length of the posts, and then he categorized them by content. So did he actually export all that data into an Excel spreadsheet? Yes, he did. Wow. So he got the app, 
pulled all the data, sucked all the data out of Instagram, and yep. then exported that into Excel and probably did pivot tables or whatever he used to analyze the data. Yeah, I actually have those spreadsheets and they don't make any sense to me, but <laughs> his analysis did make sense to me. So so what do you mean when he, he categorized them by content? What does that mean? So as I mentioned, my account is largely devoted to antiquing and vintage lifestyle. And so you'll see if you visit my account that I post pictures of my home, like full room shots of my home and how I integrate vintage items there. I post collections. I post like one item that I found while I was out questing or antiquing. And sometimes I do vignettes so I show people how to create like little, little lovely moments with things that they have found, vintage items that they have found. And then on occasion I post um, shots of myself, of the flowers or bouquets that I create pictures of my family and nature. So Davis broke up my post into those categories. And then with like the room shots, the full room shots, he broke those up into subcategories. Like here's the living room shot and this is how well this did. Here's a kitchen shot. This is how well this did. And so he even went even more granular as he divided up the categories. So in a sense, he arbitrarily created these categories because you weren't thinking about this before. Were, were you thinking when you posted, okay, this is in this bucket, this is in this bucket. Did you think that way? I actually had assumptions about what kind of posts did well. Like I knew that full room shots always did well. And I knew that pictures of multiples of collections, like multiple mirrors, multiple pieces of pottery, multiples of anything did really well. I had that assumption that those did well. But you can only post like my living room so many times. I mean, I live in a small house and I'm very, very conscious of not repeating content in my social media, on my Instagram account. So therefore, I can't always be posting room shots, even if I really want to, because they get a lot of likes. People get bored of them and then they wouldn't like them anyway. I think the fact that they get a lot of likes is because of the rarity with which I post them. But I always had found kind of like this rhythm, like, okay, I posted a collection yesterday, so I should probably do a vignette you know, vignette shot today, I was kind of aware of just like a rhythm and I kind of instinctually knew why collect my collections did pretty well and that room shots, but I never actually put numbers to it. So he created, in a sense, a taxonomy or formalized the categories that you had in your head and probably added these subcategories. So what did he do next? So then he began to identify which had the highest engagement. And this is where you get into social media lingo that is not always obvious or clear to the common person. So there's a difference between impressions, likes, and engagement. Impressions are people that see your post. So for instance, last night I posted a picture in a caption that had a reach of actually over 6,700. It's probably closer to 7,000 people out of my 27,000 followers. So that's a pretty, that's a pretty strong reach. And out of those 6,700 people, I had over a thousand likes. And Likes is the most obvious. That's how many people give you a thumbs up or a heart. Um, yeah. like a thumbs up on, on Facebook, a heart on Instagram. Um, and then of those 1,000 likes, I had over 100 comments. And, and over 67 people saved it, and there were about 20 people who shared it. That's all engagement. Engagement is how much people engage with your post. If they, if they, if they comment on it, that's engagement. If they share it because there's a little share button on Instagram, that's engagement. If they, um, if they, they save it to their, um, to their save um, folders in Instagram, that's engagement. So, and actually right now, just a little nugget of insight, Instagram right now 
prioritizes how much a post um, is saved by people and shared. That's what gets spit it up to the to the front of people's feeds as if a post is getting shared a lot and saved a lot because then that means in their minds oh this is valuable content so anyway davis used those categories to begin to identify which posts did the best so there's so much here so which post did your son say had the highest engagement so it really goes back to what i suspected which was full room shots and collections did the best but most of all they had to be really pleasing to the eye instagram is a visual medium so you have to think visually you can't just do a shot of a room with really bad light at night without great lighting or you can't do it where it's um where there's too much light or you can't post a picture where you have junk in the space i mean there's just you've got to be really conscious of creating beautiful moments on instagram because it is a visual um, medium but what i learned from davis's insights is that you have to support these beautiful moments with engaging copy because there are so many beautiful images on instagram and so many that people can comment on and often these really beautiful accounts often don't have very many followers or very many likes. And the problem is, is that they don't have an engaging caption. They say, the sunset tonight, wasn't it pretty? Something really, really boring. And what can you say in response to that if you're a follower? Oh, it is pretty. Who wants to say pretty a thousand times? I mean, it's just there's nothing to really engage with. So the most successful posts are those that have a really pretty picture for the sake of Instagram. You got to think about what is going to catch people's eye and what is pleasing to them and also what they will connect with in the caption. I bet your picture taking skills really improved in the last seven years. Absolutely. Because you're not a professional photographer. You're a professional writer. I mean, this is what we do. So talk a little bit about, I don't want to get distracted here because I want to keep going, but talk a little bit about how you actually had to learn how to create quote unquote pretty pictures. Absolutely. I go back to my early pictures and I want to delete them all, but I choose not to because it's reflective of the journey that I've been on. And I really want to embrace the progress that I've made. We're all about embracing progress on this show. So I, I keep them there as a memorial of where I have come from. But yeah, I remember starting out using my phone and then I had a friend come over and take pictures, scouting pictures for a publication and they just looked crisper and more beautiful. And I'm like, oh, my husband has a camera that we got um, a few years ago. I should pull that out. And so I started to take pictures with that. I had no idea what I was doing. They were blurry half the time, but I started to fiddle with like the functions I could do close up and blur the background. And that got me a few years into it. And then I started to participate in photo shoots with professional photographers as a stylist. And I really started to pay attention to how they framed shots, how they um, used lighting, um, how they stabilized their camera so they got really crispy, clear shots. So that was part of the journey as well. And then I took a styling, a photo styling course online, something really cheap. I took about five of them last year during COVID for like $39. And that also just helped me develop even more. And how do you use natural light? How do you, um, how do you style an image that, so that it's pleasing? So it is a journey and you have to push yourself to the next level continually. And that's what I 
felt like I did. And I, and partly I really enjoy creating pretty pictures. So if you have an enjoyment of something, you're going to continue to try to improve your life. That probably is fishing, right, Dave? (laughs) (laughs) That's really true. So, but let's now talk about the story. So yes, you have to produce and publish really great images, which we've talked about that. And I want to get back to the data piece, but talk about the stories because you mentioned that just briefly, how important are they in a sense uh, 366 is for writers, right? So this should be a strength of, of the people who we're, work, we're talking to, which is the writing. So talk about the importance of story on Instagram. So I'll illustrate with my post from last night that I posted and I already referred to that. It's doing actually quite well. Over a thousand likes for me is pretty good. And I'll tell you what the image looked like. It was actually a really beautiful image. For one, it was a collection of green McCoy pictures. So I knew just by virtue of it being a collection, that would probably do really well because people love collections. But the lighting was really beautiful. I thought I I captured the angle of it really nice. So I knew that the image was really good. But I thought I've got to push myself to actually create a caption that would create engagement because the day before I had done something really flat and I hardly got any comments. So I'm like, okay, what can I do? And so I started to think of collections and I started to think of an early collecting story. And so this is the story that I told and it generated a lot of conversation. Should I read it? Okay. So this is the actual post. This is the actual post. Along with the image that you had. Okay. So you're going to read us the post. Okay. Here we go. All right. Jennifer Costigan. She lived four doors down from me. She was a big time second grader when I was only five. One day we decided to share our collections. I took out my collection of rocks passed on to me by my grandfather who polished them so smooth your fingers couldn't resist stroking them like a purring cat. I may have also pulled out my sticker book album with robust Hello Kitty scratch and sniff sections. And yes, I was one of those girls who peeled and stuck them in the book and then regretted it when I wanted to trade up. After my big presentation, we walked to Jennifer's house who I anticipated would one up me in her grown up second grader way. And one up me she did when she pulled out her scab collection, like from skin wounds, organized in Ziploc bags. That's not hashtag collection creep. That's hashtag creepy collection. I'll stick with my pretty collections like pretty green pictures. I'll leave the scabs to Jennifer C. And then I list a variety of hashtags. So people loved the story because it took such an unexpected turn. <laughs> That's what people said. It was funny for one. And then people on multiple in multiple comments that you know that went someplace I wasn't expecting and then it got people thinking about other crazy collections that they've had or heard of and their earliest collecting stories so it just created a lot of fun conversation that's the power of story but the twist in there you had this expectation of the second grader and she pulls out a collection of scabs that's just hilarious that's almost Stephen King like is it (laughs) yeah Good. You know, a horror book all <laughs> a of a sudden you know, yeah, right. a, a, finger, a collection of fingers that she's cut off through the years so okay so that's really powerful now i want to i would love to know because this is about the data analysis that davis yeah. did so what did you discover and and really what surprised you most about his findings so there are about five different things that surprised me and the first is that people really engaged with posts of me so when I posted a picture of myself there they it got a lot of likes it was actually the third highest liked or engaged with content category so it would be like um full room shots collections and then pictures of me and that was very very surprising 
Um, and I wasn't intention. I, I have always posted pictures of myself because I always thought it was important for people to relate to the person behind the brand and the person telling these stories. I like to see the people who are behind the Instagram handle. So I always did share pictures of myself, but I never did it intentionally. And the reason partly why I think these posts do well is because those are usually posts where I'm the most vulnerable and I share something personal that's happening with myself or I share a little bit of history of myself and people connect with that. And so that just naturally leads to a lot of engagement. All right. So what was the second thing you learned? The second one is something that I still have real trouble embracing, though I have embraced it, and that is hashtags matter. After I write a post, the last thing I want to do is come up with 15 to 20 hashtags and put them at the end of the post. But what Davis found is that a lot of my new followers came by way of hashtags. And the importance of hashtags is that out is that algorithm, right? Instagram sucks in all these hashtags, and if you're getting a lot of engagement from people who already follow you, they'll put you up on this explore page, and the explore page is where you have the little search um, icon if you go there, and then there's just a page of all these different posts of people you don't follow, and you'll show up on that search page, that explore page, and people will click on you, and if they go to that post and they like what they see, they may explore your other Instagram posts, and then they may follow you, and so at Christmas time, I got a ton of people through hashtags. Um, I still need to work on finding the right grouping of hashtags that will get at um, get at the right people. I feel like I'm stuck in um, reaching the same people, so I need to go and explore and do some investigation and research on what hashtags I can use to get at a new group of people. And there are there are apps that you can use to do this. You can go online. You can search, like for me, home account hashtags, and they'll spit out 20 or so, and you can just experiment. Like put those in the bottom of your post and see how well they do. Some people have a group of like 20 or 30 that they just have on their clipboard, and then they cut and paste it after every single post. I like to vary it up, um, and I, I think that's important to vary it up. But you should have between about... 15 to 20. Last night I did maybe eight. So I'm still, I still don't like doing hashtags, but they're critical. Okay. We could do a whole episode on hashtags and maybe we should down the road. Okay. What was the third insight? And this was something else that I speculated was truth, but time of posting really matters. The time of day that you post really matters. And nine in the morning, around nine in the morning, like 8.55 in the morning and 5.30 at night are the optimal times for me to be posting. That's when my audience is most active. That's when um, the data shows they are most engaged. So I have posted willy-nilly in the past. Like I took a picture at like 11 o'clock in the morning. I'm like, oh, I'll just post this now. And it never does well. I know it won't, but I do it anyway. And then I'm like, why didn't this post do well? Well, of course, when did you post it? You posted when nobody was on. And if it doesn't get an initial frenzy of activity, then Instagram will bury it. So it's really important that you get an initial frenzy of activity on your post for it to continue to get engagement. It's how, it's how Instagram works, I'm telling you. Wow. So post of yourself, do well, hashtags really matter, time of day matters. What's the fourth insight? I already alluded to this, and it's that longer captions are better than really short ones. And when I say long, I don't mean like 500 words or 300 words. It's like 
you know, 85 to 150, be thoughtful, say something that is provocative, something that's personal, something that your audience will connect with. So I did um, speculate that that was the case because I've noticed that when I don't put any thought into what I'm writing, I don't get a lot of engagement. But Davis noted that about 150 words is the optimal amount of words, about 10 lines. Wow, that's really, really helpful. In fact, I was just thinking if you're a writer and you're just getting started, you don't need to do any data analysis. You can take a lot of what Melissa just learned today, these five insights, and apply it to your situation. Now, everybody's going to be different in terms of time of day based on who your audience is, for example, but these are really applicable. Okay, let's talk about the fifth and final insight or surprise that you had after Davis did this analysis. So this was another thing that I suspected, and it's that stories, Instagram stories, Instagram Live now, Instagram Reels, these new um, features that Instagram is always releasing, they're important to engage with and use and, and capitalize on. So for me, I post on stories pretty much every single day. And Davis noticed from the data that stories where I have more than about eight in a series, you lose interest and it actually hurts your post of the day. I don't know what the correlation is, but the point is that when you post on stories, you're going to get people who don't see your post, the, the gallery, because so, for instance, sometimes I just look at people's stories. I don't even look at um, the gallery. I just go through stories at the end of the day. And so you'll grab people who don't look at the gallery. And, and you'll also push people to your gallery. If you say you post um, the picture that you posted in your feed earlier today, you can push people to that. Um, or it's just a way to get people interested in what you're doing. Say they forgot about you, but your stories pop up. Oh, let me go see what Melissa is up to. But stories are also a really powerful way for people to get to know you personally. And I am a huge, huge believer that the personal component of your, of your social media presence is so, so important. And that's what people connect with. And I can't say that enough. I know that it's really uncomfortable for lots of people who um, aren't used to putting their, their personal self out there in this public forum. But even if you don't go super deep, I tend to be a little bit more vulnerable than a lot of people. But just sharing a funny story about your life that isn't too vulnerable can really go a low, can really go far in connecting you with other people. So we have these five insights that Davis teased to the surface for you. So what can't the data really do for you? So you did all this analysis, but at the end of the day, it's just analysis. What can't it do for you? Well, it can't make you actually start posting and posting the right things, right? It can't make you use the hashtags. It can't make you um, post pictures of yourself. It can't make you do all these things that you know you're supposed to do, post regularly, post at a certain time. So. The data can't make you do it. You have to make that choice. But more importantly, the data can't make you be an engaged person on your social media platform. And more than anything that I just shared in the previous five insights or throughout this entire podcast is that on social media, you have to engage with other people's posts. You have to engage with people when they comment on your posts. You have to engage with people when they comment on your stories. And it can feel tedious. But if you don't, you're not building a community. And you have to do it to continue to grow a following. That's people connect with you. They'll they'll pass you on. They'll share a post. But if you are not engaging in community, you're just you're an abstract. You're not anything personal. So this, you have to engage. 
This is why corporations have such a hard time with social media. So they'll outsource this to a social media firm and they want their executives you know, to be on social media, but there's no vulnerability. Right. Right. And there's no way that somebody can engage other posts. It's just, it's really hard to do social media and outsource it. Absolutely. And the other thing that you have to be aware of is if you are going to commit to social media, you have to commit. You have to put time into it. You can't just let this be a once a week thing that you kind of half-heartedly put yourself into. If you really want to grow a following, if it's important to you, and you have to ask, is it important to you first? I'm not saying you should have a social media following, but if it is important to you, then you have to commit to it. You have to give efforts to it every day. You have to think about how you can improve. You have to think about how you can be more engaging. You have to think about what you can give back to the community. You have to think about how you can give great content to people. You have to be committed. And that can be like a full-time job, really. Honestly, you could spend hours doing that. So again, how much are you willing to commit to it? Woo, preach it. Melissa, man, right. you just you just uh, gave us the altar call right there. Did I? Yes, you did. <laughs> the social well, the, media altar call. The social media altar call. Well, I, it's just very helpful because I think as writers, we want to build a following. We want to be able to, once we sell the book, whether we self-publish, whether we use a hybrid publisher, whether we have a traditional publisher, we all have the same problems, which is how are you going to get this book out there into the world? It just doesn't happen willy-nilly and I think uh, social media is one way again it's not for every writer right? right there are other ways to do it but it's one way and if you're going to do it it's pick a platform and then do it well like what you're talking about absolutely and you don't need 25,000 followers or 100,000 followers or a million followers I would say an engaged community of 1,000 followers is more powerful than a disengaged community of 25,000 followers meaning if you have 1,000 loyal followers who show up every day to what you're writing and sharing and are sharing it with other people, then that's all you need. You know, you don't need a big account to have people who are your fans and who will support you in your publicity down the road. Wow. This is, this has been so rich and so good. It makes me think a lot about, uh, my own social media activities with my it's not a jobby it's just my side hustle two guys in a river fly fishing podcast and it's just been very very helpful so thank you so much so now we have to pivot pivot to use a cliche <laughs> we have to pivot to words of the episode so you're gonna go first today can i make you go first today sure why not i interviewed you and you had to talk the entire yes. time so why not make you go first what's your word of the episode um my word of the episode is Bombinate. <laughs> what? Bombinate. B-O-M-B-I-N-A-T-E. And it means to make a humming or buzzing noise. So the bombinating of the bees grew louder and louder as we got closer to their hive. Or after complaining for hours, his voice just sounded like a bombinating mess. So B-O-M-B-I-N-A-T-I-N-G. It's kind of an onomatopoeia, I would say. Where did you get that word? Where did you come across that word? Did you just like open up the dictionary? <laughs> you know, I have this list of beautiful words and that was one of them. And so I hope to use it. Every once in a while, you know, I share these words and then they just come up in That's my so conversation. Awesome. And I'm so happy that I'm actually using them in my day-to-day conversation. So <laughs> That's a great word. I love the word. Yeah, it's a good word. 
I'm trying to think. The other day, my friend and I were walking, and I used a word that I shared here, and now I can't remember what it was. Let me see if I can remember it. Oh, bonamy. The goodwill. Oh, bonamy. Yeah. It's a goodwill and cheer of people. And we were talking about COVID. I'm like, yeah, it feels like bonamy is never going to return, right? And so I was so, I'm like, where did that word come from? I'm like, it's because I used it on the podcast. Did you have to explain it to her? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Actually, I think she knew that word. She's like, yeah, good use, good use. That's awesome. So what's your word of the day, Dave? So my word of the episode is verisimilitude. That's a hard word to say. That's a mouthful. It is. Verisimilitude. Verisimilitude. So it's a word that refers to the appearance of being real or true. The appearance of being real or true. So... We used that word in our weekly Q&A for our, um, well, I used it to talk about storytelling. So when you tell a story or write a story, you're not writing the story about everything that happened, right? Every detail, every breath, every word. You're creating the appearance of a story. So you're creating the verisimilitude of a story, right? So you're creating the appearance of, of a real story. Right, right. So you have to eliminate certain things. You're eliminating conversations. You're collapsing time. You're expanding time. And so I just thought it's a great word. It's a, you know, the, it's the appearance of being real or being true. Yeah, and that's what makes great fiction it's great. It's what makes great fiction great. When yeah, it feels right. similar. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> for sure. That's a so great that's word. It. That's great. So speaking of our weekly Q&A, our Road Trippers Q&A. Do you want to talk a little bit about Road Trippers and how people can join? So Road Trippers is our weekly Q&A group. It's our community. And you can go to Facebook, search on Facebook for Road Trippers. It's a closed group. Just ask to join and we'll let you in. Each week we post uh, a link, a weekly Zoom link to our Q&A session that we have with, uh, we have a cadre or a cohort or stable or i guess we can use all sorts of words coterie of of writers and and we meet each week and we we do a couple things one is we talk about where we've made progress we talk about the questions that they have so questions about publishing finding an agent everything from how to write stories you name the questions they're all over the map everything from writing to publishing to promoting your book and then we also do a teaching session so either melissa or i publish, well, we don't publish, we actually do a teaching session on, say, story or social media or promotion. So it's a one hour. It goes, it's from 3.30 Central Time to 4.30 Central Time on Tuesdays. But anyway, jump on Road Trippers. It's a great community. We post other, other things as well. So we'd love for you to join that group. It's free right now. And so jump on, on Road Trippers and hopefully we'll see you and you'll be invited to our weekly Q&A. Absolutely. We'd love to have you. So I think that's a wrap, Dave. What do you think? I think that's a big wrap. This was a tremendous, tremendous... It was huge. No, I'm not, I can't do that. <laughs> phenomenal. It was phenomenal. Okay. So <laughs> I think that is a wrap. All right. I'm Melissa Parks. And I'm Dave Getz. Now buckle up and write. <laughs>